Hello and welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is titled Headlights. It is from the self-titled album by Near Beer. So the album is also, I guess, titled Near Beer or titled self-title. And my guest today is the guy singing there, Joey Sierra. And Joey's been on the band before, or the podcast before. His other band, the Henry Clay People, he came on and talked about life with the Henry Clay people. His brother, Andy, who wrote the film Palm Springs and wrote the uh, created the TV show The Resort, he was on the show. He was also in the Henry Clay people. Joey writes on The Resort and other TV shows and things. So this is a wide-ranging topics that Joey and I cover from uh, music to when we, we knew each other back in my Halcyon days of youth in Echo Park when I was uh, aimless and drunk. <laughs> well, everybody was. Um, so we talk about that. It's a really great episode. Very excited about that. And this new album, uh, I'm glad Joey came back to music. I don't know if you can hear the construction next door, but there's construction next door. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, really great album. Please check it out. Uh, I fucking love it. Double Helix Records sent me a copy. All links to... Uh, near beer, double helix records, all of it's in the show notes. Also, uh, I, there's a part two to this episode. Joey and I talked for 30 more minutes. We get into way into, there's some deep analysis of, uh, of the Sopranos. So if you want to hear some TV nerds talk, it's actually great. Joey has some really interesting insights that I really appreciated. So if you're a fan of the Sopranos, you might want to check that out. And we talk more about music and life. It's really a win-win. Uh, I will put the links to the other episodes in the show. I think uh, the, the, my first interview with uh, Joey and my interview with Andy and the part two, which is a Patreon exclusive. $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. It gets you uh, early episodes, part twos. Most of my episodes have a part two, sometimes an half hour to an hour. I write blogs. I do video, audio blogs. Um, I'm a little behind lately because uh, life has been fucking mayhem, but uh, the part twos are always there. I'm always timely with the part two and the extra content, but uh, just the blogs and stuff I've, I've lagged behind. But something I'm going to start doing in these episodes... Um, just in the intro, I'm going to talk a bit about what I'm into musically currently. And um, I discovered this artist, I'm Jamie Branch, who is a jazz trumpeter from... Uh, she's from New York originally, but she played with a lot of people I've had on the podcast in Chicago, like uh, like Bill McKay and Ken Vandermark. Um, and she recently passed away, and I did not know her music, which is surprising because she's played with a number of people I know. Uh, but I just went and checked out her music and, uh, I really, uh, highly suggest you check out Jamie Branch. He's an incredible trumpet player and really, uh, amazing. So check out, just check out Jamie Branch's music. And speaking of trumpet players, I've been reading the biography pops on Louis Armstrong. And I've been reading a lot of biographies about old jazz dudes uh, I did a Mingus one and I did a Duke Ellington one, especially Duke Ellington. I was like, this is a seminal, like a fucking major figure in jazz and music who influences everybody, whether it be fucking the Beatles or not. He's in his footprint is in everything, as is 
Mingus. Mingus is wildly influential, more so than I knew when I read that book. Like he's pointed to to like R and B and all kinds of funk and like all kinds of shit. Um, anyway, pops really man, just fascinating, fascinating stuff. When you realize you, I think we take the older artists like. Louis Armstrong has been such a consistent in our entire lives and we see him in films and all kinds of things that we take for granted the weight of what this guy did. His, his soloing was unlike, unlike anything else. He wasn't the first to scat, but he was the first to do it in a different manner that then everybody copied. He was the first, wasn't the first jazz musician, but he was the first trumpeter that everybody started copying and was like, and to this day, like you don't have Miles or Dizzy without, you know, Louis Armstrong. So if you get the chance, go to your local library and buy, a, get a copy, because that's what I did. Got a copy of Pops and this the dude came from the streets, poor as fuck, and then became one of the biggest artists of all time, which is just astounding. His, his childhood is just astounding. Um, that's that. I think, uh, real quick, you could go to the show notes. If you need a website, you could go. My partner, Kelly R. Dwyer does, uh, websites. She also is a photographer and the photo that you will see on the social media is she would shot, uh, near beer live. And that's the photo I'm using. So, I got a cool partner, really, frankly, thematdwire.com. Also, uh, I got a project I'm working on and I can announce very soon and it will benefit the Climate Emergency Fund and a bunch of activism about climate change. So also, if you can donate money to the Climate Emergency Fund, please do so. Uh, The fucking clock is ticking. Did you know there's like rivers in China that are the third largest river in the world has dried up in China? You don't hear much about it in the press. You see it a lot more on so, but that's fucking terrifying. Uh, and East Africa is like tens of thousands of people are on the verge of starvation, if not starving. And it would be cool if the media covered that because whether we like it or not, that's going to be fucking here, here being the U.S., but other parts, you know, of the world are feeling it and we got to do something and we got to do something fast. So you can give to the climate emergency fund. I am announcing a project very, very soon um, that will raise some money and give you something to tap your foot to. I can't say yet, but you're going to dig it. I fucking swear to God. That being said, here's my great episode with Joey Sierra of near beer. I was thinking the other day that we've known each other in like 20 years. Close to it. Is that true? Jesus. Uh, well, it must have been like yeah, 2000, 2005 or 2006, So f- I would say. 15-ish. I've been here 21 years, which I don't... It makes me sad to admit. <laughs> uh, then, yeah, it's been... I, I moved to Glendale in 2006. So that's... Uh, that's that must have been it yeah i sparks sparks flew i look back at that time when we first met each other and all i can think of is man i must have been obnoxious to be around (laughs) no dude i i feel like i remember meeting you and like you were kind of in the cool kids crew with like todd and then i talked to you and i was like oh this person is funny 
and fucked up and I like you already. And, 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 and it was like, it felt like a, a, a kindred spirit. So fucked up is, yeah, I was, and I was often fucked up. I drank so much in those days. Like it was just, I had nowhere to be. So why not? There, I feel like there was just a kind of general sea of alcoholism floating in our, in our friend group. Uh, and yeah, some people are still in various stages in it and some people are in various stages out of it. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of drinking back then. It felt like, I mean, I just feel like everything was like, and maybe it's through rose colored glasses or whatever, but I just feel like we'd go to sea level or we'd go, it just seemed like we'd go somewhere and there was like all kinds of booze and it didn't cost anything or if it didn't cost much. Like it was like, I don't know. I don't know. Cause I, I, I reflect on it and I feel like maybe we spent all of our money on alcohol and never realized it was happening, but it just was like, we would look at our bank account and be like, what, how come we're all broke? And then only to realize that if you check the receipts, uh, there's a disproportionate amount of, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I once I started like doing my taxes as a responsible adult, I was like, Jesus. Like the amount of times I would eat out, like eat dinner, I was just like, what the fuck is like you can't put something in a pan, motherfucker? Dude, I so I moved to New York. I told you I moved to New York last year and um I feel like I blinked my eyes and all of a sudden like cocktails cost 18, 19, $20 and nothing has made me not want to drink like seeing 18, 19, $20 cocktails. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. That stuff's expensive, man. And I don't know, like all the fancy cocktails, they taste okay, but it's not, they don't taste $20. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. I've, I mean, I feel like back in 2005, 2006, there was Barrigan's, like the Gold Room. All those places in Echo Park were like, you could get fucked up for a reasonable amount of money. <laughs> Dude, Barrigan's is one of my first L.A. memories, going there and having uh, margaritas oh, and, and like endless chips. And that actually is endless chips, like making a meal out of tortilla chips because I couldn't afford to like get a Berrigan's burrito. Uh, that, that felt like very much like uh, a certain time and place that yeah. I remember fondly. That and the Echo Park was such, I don't know, like now Echo Park, I go there and I'm just like, what happened? Like, it's just kind of, it's all about money and like, everything's expensive and it's it's like you said it's like 18 dollar cocktails and i'm just like oh you don't you all motherfuckers don't know what you missed <laughs> like i don't mind to sound like an old guy but it's just like it was like it was kind of artsy and there was like always little something <laughs> happening yeah and it, it felt like also like properly like dangerous at times and it was a little more rock it was a little more rock and roll back then properly dangerous uh, keeps the prices down that's what i like about like i like you about properly dangerous yeah i i i, I witnessed a shooting uh right out in front of bear or what used to be bear against the guy got away okay so all's all's good but yeah it was some gnarly stuff there. Isn't that crazy that when you're like in your 20s and whatnot, you're like, oh, I'm shooting. Like it's just part, like when you live in a neighborhood like that, you just kind of take it in step. Like, oh, well, okay. 
Dude. I, so, uh, at South by Southwest this last year, um, you know, I, I haven't been to South by in probably 10 years. Um, and so I go to South by this year, my good out with my drummer, like late one night, it was like the first night of South by, um, and then we're getting an Uber cause we're ready to go home. Cause it's after two. And we like witnessed a shooting in a parking lot, <laughs> like right across the street from us. And all of a sudden like bullets are flying. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm like, I'm in my late thirties. I'm too old for this. And like, but it, it was this like weird, weird moment where this, uh, bouncer, you know, oh, so like, the shooting happens like across the street. And again, it's just like bullets flying. We thought it was fireworks at first, but then we saw, you know, we saw, we saw what was happening. Um, and so you hear pop, 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 pop. And then this bouncer, like I'm like watching him in slow motion because the door had locked because it was after two. So they had actually closed the bar and this bouncer is in like slow motion, trying to unlock the door for me and the drummer to like help us like get inside this place because we were, we were in like this little area where there's no, but it was really no cover. So I was just like slow motion, like waiting for a bullet to ricochet off of the pavement and like <laughs> hit me in the face. And that's then go lights out. Uh, but he managed to unlock the door. And then he, I mean, this bartender is a, or this, uh, bouncer is a champ because he like shoved me and the drummer inside the bar, like before he like ran for himself. Um, yeah. But anyhow, I'm, I'm too old for I'm too old for shootouts. That was like my twenties. You're too old to live in America. That's what that really is. <laughs> yeah, it was a little it was a little scary. I've only, I mean, it was a lot scary. I've only had I've only witnessed one shooting. I don't feel as and which is weird because when you were telling that story, I was like, I don't think I've seen a shooting, and I did. I saw a guy. I think it was like a guy walked in on his wife with somebody else. Like it seemed like one of those scenarios because the oh. guy was fleeing and the wife was scantily clad. And I was, <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> and I was like on a first date with this girl. And I should have taken that as like some kind of like cosmic, like, cause it was like one of the worst relationships of my life. <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is your That's- future. If you don't suck up. Or if you don't, yeah. It seemed like yeah. I wanted to, though. How long was it between, Henry Clay people and the new band. Uh, it's, it gets fuzzy because Henry Clay people had, we, we did one of those like, all right, this is our last show. Never see you guys again. And then like two years later, we're like, just kidding. We'll do one more just for fun. <laughs> and then, and then like the dude from K or spiral stairs from pavement was like, Oh, I'm going to do a couple shows. You guys want to play? And we are like, all right, we'll get back together. Cause it's, it's the dude from pavement. So of course we'll get back together to play some shows with him. And so it was like a soft, <laughs> uh, repetitive couple of, you know, fake quits. But I guess realistically we were done, done by like 2014, 2015 near beer. Uh, I had to like, actually like, check my emails to see when we actually started <laughs> I, um, because that was also like, uh, sure. You guys want to want to practice? You want to jam? Oh, like who's going to play guitar? Okay. You, okay. Who's going to play drums? It was like a very kind of like nebulous beginning to the band. Um, but then I guess we started, we played our first show in 2016 or no, no, never mind. 2019. I had a bit of number dyslexia there. Uh, so yeah, Nearbur had his first show in 2019. I don't know. So I guess like five, six years after 
Henry Clay's full demise. Was that, were you, when you quit Henry Clay, people were you like, I might, I'm done with music or was, I don't know. What was yeah. That? Yeah. I mean, it was a complicated uh, mix of a couple things. One, I had uh, chronic tinnitus. Like my ears just fucking ring all the time. And I remember going to like an ENT or an audiologist and getting my hearing checked and he showed like the, <laughs> the report back. And it was just like this notch where he's like, Oh, you see that that is like noise induced hearing loss kind of right at the sound of like a crash symbol. <laughs> uh, and so he like in that, that ringing, I, I remember like being in the audio, uh, like getting my hearing tested and like, you know, there was the part where like, I'm supposed to like click the little beeper thing to say like, Oh yeah, I, I hear the tone when I hear it. And then I remember telling the audiologist, you know, I'm pretty sure I would hear it. if like my ringing was a little bit less. And she was like, Ooh, uh, not, not a good sign. And then afterwards the audiologist and like the ENT were like, uh, so yeah, you might want to like consider a different career, which was like, dark times my friend um because when your band is like you know at, the, at that time we were sort of doing okay and we were um i felt like we were upwardly mobile at that time and then that just got into my head like oh no like this band that i love that i do is now like destroying my ear cells or whatever and i'm gonna be deaf if i keep doing this and so that scared the shit out of me i kept i mean that was about uh, two years before I called it quits with Henry Clay people. And so every tour that we went on subsequent to that was kind of a nightmare scenario where I was like depressed. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm slowly killing myself by doing this band. Um, and I can't keep doing this, but I also didn't want to let down the band. I also loved playing in the band. So it was, it was some heavy stuff. I so that was part one. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, you know, part two was we put out a shitty record. <laughs> um, I mean, no, I, I, I take that back. It wasn't a shitty record. I like, I like a lot of the songs on that record, but I do. Um, there was a record that we put out that was very much like, I listened back to it and I'm like, I was scared the whole time is when I was kind of starting to spiral about the hearing stuff and about the tinnitus and the record suffered, I think, dramatically because I was a kind of a head case at that point. Um, that record was the record that was supposed to be the one that like got us a national fan base. And we were going to like get promoted from a the local band that could to like a band that maybe could make some fans into headline tours. And that record definitely was not the one. So our record label, uh, said i mean they they had signed us for a two record deal um and so they had to put out the second record no matter what and so at that point i think andy and i and some of the other guys in the band like kind of saw the writing on the wall um they all knew they were all privy to my tinnitus and that i couldn't keep doing this forever and so we decided hey let's make one more record let's bring in anybody that was like kind of a part of the band. Let's make it like fun again. And, um, just kind of have like a proper send off record. And so the final record 25 for the rest of our lives was that. So it, that one felt more celebratory and like, 
making peace with like moving on from bands cut to <laughs> me and bear. <laughs> um, but I'm also a lot more careful about it. And I'm like, I, I think I've worked through some of the stuff and you know, I'm not, we're not going on seven week tours. And when we do play shows, I like good about wearing solid ear protection and do you whatnot. Regret not doing that earlier on wearing. Oh, fuck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my buddy just sent me a video of like my college band, um, playing like a, it's like me and Andy in the earlier iteration of like what ended up, ended up becoming Henry Clay people. But we were in this like punky band. We're actually pretty good. I, I was like 21 at the time. Andy was still in high school and like I watched it and I was like, Oh, we're pretty good. Holy cow. That is just the sound of like cra- symbol crash, 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 crash. And our guitars were just like, for whatever reason, you know, it was the early 2000s. And so they just were like trebly telecasters and they sounded just like, like each, each like strum was like a dagger to the ear. Um, and so, yeah, like the kind of music that I liked and how we played was horrible for, you know, ears, but, um, and I just didn't wear earplugs until far too late. I mean, I remember being like, like in the studio one time trying to get the perfect, telecaster through a Vox AC 30 sound. And it's like my favorite kind of like guitar sound. My, my head was like up against an amp that should never have like been nearly as loud as it was trying to get a sound that like, I just think back on that and I'm like, how dumb was I to do that? But, but not on, you live, you learn, (laughs) (laughs) but not uncommon. Like, I mean, I, I, I never saw any, like it wasn't until quite recently I would see people wear those intricate head fucking things. And I was always like, you're not cool. Yeah, no, I mean like, I remember, uh, like mission of Burma, we opened for mission of Burma one time and like the guy from that band had also had a similar tinnitus thing where he was going to quit the band. And now he like the band wears, you know, some serious, uh, earplugs and they have like the little baffle uh things that block the drums um and yeah i think there's a lot of people that have had this like going down the internet rabbit hole of like all the musicians that have tinnitus there's a lot and various ones have had moments where they're like oh we're done the band is over we'll never do this again right. and then they always figure something out to like two or less or still play a couple shows but be more careful about it so do you have those intricate fancy ear things now uh i i did have some fancy ones and i lost them because i'm i'm not (laughs) responsible (laughs) um and you know like now i often wear the like if it's band practice I, i just wear the super heavy duty like like construction worker earplugs and they're pretty good. Um, and I just try not to, I try to cap band practices, not have them for super long. And yeah, I'm just more careful as I've gotten older. Cause I realized the, <laughs> the frailty of the human body. Um, yeah. But what's crazy too is like what happens. Um, and I'm going to totally botch this explanation of it, but what happens when you have that like noise induced hearing loss, it's sort of like, a, it's kind of like, um, 
a phantom limb. Like you get your finger chopped off and your nerves still feel that finger that got chopped off. The noise induced hearing loss, it is kind of like a blunt force trauma to like whatever your ear cells are. And so it is the noise is kind of like a phantom limb. And they're also, you also kind of feel this like fullness in your ear where you're just like, there's something missing that was there that is not there anymore. And what ends up happening is that you often become super hypersensitive to like frequencies just on the periphery of the like sound that you lost. So right after this happened, you know, if like a fire truck went by or like a fork clanked on a plate, I would like cover my ears because it would hurt. So it would, it would just feel like it was something was like stabbing me. Um, so that part was actually scarier than them just the chronic ringing because you just felt like, Oh God, I can't go into like a subway or I can't go out to dinner. Like, I think I just got a little bit like in your head and which is the worst thing you can do is like totally retreat from exposure to noise because doing that just makes your sensitivity to it even higher. So it's kind of like you have to reacclimate to like getting comfortable with noise. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. I think I have it to a degree. I definitely have ringing in my ears at all times. And I probably, I mean, I went to a zillion shows and then of course the Walkman generation and I'm sure I fucked myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes on fast for some people. It comes on slower for other people. My family, like my, uh, you know, there's some genetic component to it. My grandma is, uh, she's deaf. I mean, she's, she's pretty much fully deaf. Uh, but it is, you know, she's a musician. Um, I have an uncle who is a pretty good musician too. I feel like it's, it's sort of just that like, uh, dramatic irony curse of like, Oh, you're a musician. Well, uh, <laughs> take, take all of that thing that, you know, you rely so heavily on your ears and let us curse you by having something that just destroys your ears. I didn't know you came hey. from such a musical family. Is it, were your parents musical? Um, so <laughs> it's definitely not my dad's side. My dad's side, uh, I look at as like the music appreciators. My dad loves music and um, feels all the kind of cheesy emotional feelings that you get from, from music. And he's, he's big on that. My mom's side, super talented. My grandma plays piano better than anybody that I know who plays piano. Um, That includes Brian Whelan. Uh, (laughs) actually Brian's probably better than my grandma. My grandma can play like classical stuff and she can do it often by ear. She's really good at reading music, but she can also just, she's just at a level that I don't understand. Um, and then my grandpa is, they had two pianos in their place that, um, so my grandma would play one and my grandpa would kind of just like noodle along under her. Um, and so he taught himself how to play piano and he could actually play by ear pretty well. And then, yeah, like down, my mom's one of, um, five kids and every single one of them has some musical talent. My mom played like, uh, upright bass and orchestra and my uncles, you know, my uncle plays guitar, my other uncle sings, um, so half, like one half of our genetic code, pretty darn good musicians. And then we have like <laughs> my Polish dad side, uh, which is just like the heart, they're like musical appreciator, but like pretty actively bad musical chops. Um, and so Andy and I always talk about like, 
<laughs> we could have been contenders if. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I, I think that it's been. Um, I mean, for the kind of music we play, like we get the side that's my dad's all passion, and then we get a little bit of like some musical knowledge from my mom's side. Was so there I was a, fascinated to think about? Was there a lot of polka? Because I have Polish heritage. <laughs> I love polka. I'm not like even being ironic about it. I grew up with it and I actually appreciate it. I know I've been made fun of for that too. Uh, you know, growing up, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, polka, but um, my grandma, so she was from Chicago. I know we've talked about this before, but like uh, I never knew my grandpa growing up. He had, he had died before I was born, but my grandma would come and stay with us for like a couple weeks a year, usually around the holidays. And, um, I remember her coming into like my, like I had a buddy of mine and we had like bleached hair, like super spiky doing like skater punk rock mid nineties stuff. And my grandma, like hearing us play like a song and like was doing like polka class (laughs) (laughs) and she was just like smiling. And we were trying to do this like snarly skater punk song. And, um, yeah, she was still, it, it, that's kind of the equivalent of my, how my dad is too. <laughs> he like doesn't quite get the music, but he's just like doing joyful, uh, polka claps. <laughs> how, what was the inspiration to start getting back to music? Was it just like, is it the classic, he can't change who you are type of thing? Yeah, dude, I, I went away to, um, so after the band ended, Andy and I both decided like, Oh, let's go to school. And I, I went away to grad school. And did you study at grad school in Boston, right? You went to fancy school, right? Yeah. Cause I yeah, saw I you went to... one time and I was really drunk after the show. <laughs> oh, and my, my mom says hi, by the way, she, my mom loves you. Like after that night, my mom was there. I remember. Uh, yeah. And we went out and had drinks with her and, uh, yeah, she was like, oh, I love Matt. Um, anyhow, my mom says hi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Went to, went to fancy school. Um, but I, I went to fancy school. Did you go to, but it was just like Harvard or something or is that? Yeah. Yeah. Are you uncomfortable with going to Harvard? I think a lot of people are. And it's like the cliche. It's like, Oh, I went to school in Boston. It's like, shut up asshole. Um, but then you say the, the name and it also seems like you're an asshole. So. I had a boss who went to <laughs> Yale and he would bring it up every fucking chance he got. And I was like, okay, pal, I get it. You went to Yale. You're, you're still a fucking bore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't, uh, you know, I never bought a t-shirt or, uh, but you're not boring. Kind of... You're an interesting dude who went to Harvard and it's still quite an accomplishment. Uh, no. I mean, I don't know. I, I went to the, like, I was in their education school. They have like a great ed school. Um, like, I don't want to talk shit on their ed school because like it is great. And they're the future leaders of education and great human beings. And, uh, all I wanted to do while I was there was like, you know, I, I missed the band. I, I, when I moved out there, I did not bring a guitar with me. Um, And it was like, oh, well, I'm just going to put that part of my life behind me and like kind of cut it out, which was like impossible for me to do. Within three months, I called my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And I was like, hey, figure out uh, if you can bring two guitars on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm for sure missing the guitars. Um, 
And so she did. And I, I kind of had to make peace with the fact that I love music too much to like fully give it up. And, you know, I had to definitely change my relationship to it. And like when I would go to shows, I would bring earplugs to shows. Um, and then, uh, while I was there, um, Andy had talked about starting this band called fakers and it was like various members of other friend bands that we had, you know, they, they were our buddies. Um, and so, yeah, we started fakers and it was like five, five guys that all write songs and everybody was like, all right, you write two songs, you write two songs, you write two songs. That's like a 10 song set. Cool. And that was kind of the, the vibe of fakers, which was sort of perfect for how I wanted to get back into music. I didn't want to like go back in and have my own band again because I just kind of felt like exhausted by Henry Clay stuff. And then I also wanted to sort of move on. Um, but Fakers is like a nice middle ground of not fully moving on, uh, but still, you know, getting, get, getting to enjoy the glories of an occasional rock and roll show. Was there a period of mourning after Henry Clay people or, and I would imagine I I'm speaking from my personal experience of where I'm like, I quit. I can't. And tried to be irresponsible. Didn't work. Oh, for no, for sure. I I think that, um, the decision to go to grad school (laughs) and the, and the, the year there, you know, was absolutely like full of like, Oh man, I miss it so much. Like, um, you know, that's, it becomes, it's tough because it becomes part of your identity. Like, Oh yeah, you're the guy who was in that kind of like sloppy band, <laughs> but, ne- but now you're not anymore. I'm like, who, who are you? Who am I? Um, and you know, Andy and I had started, uh, tinkering with screenwriting stuff, but like, that is just such a private thing when you're writing stuff, n- nobody really knows you're doing that. Um, and then a music act is a, such a much more public thing. And so it was just, it was weird. And, uh, uh, for what it's worth, like I had so much fun playing those shows and, you know, you have, you have like who you are on stage and I'm sure, you know, you, you know what that's like, your persona on stage when you step out on stage is not always the persona that you have, you know, talking to a buddy in your apartment, uh, or, you know, just hanging out. Um, but I felt like I'd, I'd killed that part of myself <laughs> by virtue of like ending the band. So no longer was that part of myself able to find, you know, their, their, their voice or their Avenue. Um, and you know, yeah. So that's, that's for sure. Like a depressing, uh, there's definitely like depressing parts of that. But then you also have to kind of like make peace with some of that is, you know, I guess, I guess growing up cut to near bear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it is now making peace with the fact that, listen, I am turning 40 this year. I love playing in rock and roll bands. I love music. I'm never not going to do it. Um, I don't have... I don't have the stars in my eyes or think that our band is going to be like a giant band ever. But as long as music brings me joy and it brings the people that are around joy and the other band members joy, um, and we can make a couple fans here and there, like 
why the hell not? You know, the world sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I think all we can really do is like figure out ways to, you know, bring more joy into a increasingly joyless world. Yeah. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and make yourself happy. Like I quit everything and took a corporate job at CBS for like almost two years. And it was how my wife stayed with me through my miserable fucking pouty ego bullshit. I will never know. I've apologized repeatedly over the past few years, <laughs> but yeah, it was the same. Yeah. It was similar where I was just like, what the fuck? And I was like, sort of would try to do stuff, but I didn't perform. Don't want to perform anymore, but it hurt. Like I just was not myself. Like it's, if it's what you do, it's what you do. And that's, that's that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. I think you have to kind of, uh, it's a process to come to terms with how much of it is who you are and how much of it you want to continue to, to be. And I had a similar thing, like after coming back from grad school, I, um, I pretty much decided that I didn't want to go wholeheartedly into education. And so I had a couple jobs that were like really tough for me to, you know, I, I spent my twenties not learning how to make copies or understanding Excel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was in my twenties, like drinking PBRs on a Tuesday night and like on, in some city, I didn't know where it was or like on a map as you should should with your fucking twenties. And so, yeah, like like regular kind of life work skills. I just, I didn't have. And so when it came to some of those expectations that I saw from employers who I conned into letting me have a job. Um, it was just like a crippling sense of like, Oh shit, they're going to find out. And then also like the fact that like the Harvard thing, for sure people thought that I was like smarter than I was because of that. And, you know, I was like, cool. I went to like a good grad school, but I still don't know how to read in a fucking spreadsheet. Like, um, (laughs) I think these and, are all things to commend. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but it helped me make peace with, I mean, you know, doing a couple of those jobs, um, helped me see what I wanted to do. And that, you know, band stuff, creative stuff was always had to be some element of what I, uh, wanted to do going forward. And it's hard. I mean, uh, it's, <laughs> all the like lo- lovely, fun, creative, uh, things that I've gotten to do have like come at some kind of a psychic toll <laughs> or emotional toll or like something, but it's still like, I don't know, like you just do it. Um, and some, I, I don't, it's like, I don't know how not to do it. Yeah. I don't know how to turn it fully off. How did what would spark the creative uh, the uh, not the creative the script dabbling because you said you dabbled and i know you recently wrote on the resort were you staff yeah, yeah you're staff right and you got to uh, and live in puerto rico uh so andy moved to puerto rico um he was he was running the, the the ship down there and yeah i was like i was story editor on it um so yeah i was in the writing room um for that and yeah, so we started our, I think the thing that like kind of sparked our screenwriting journey, I mean, 
it started a long time ago. I mean, I, I went, I was a film major when I entered college, uh, because I wanted to be like some hotshot director. And then all of a sudden you go to college and you realize that like all the people that were in the film major, um, felt like not all of them, but like they, it felt like the people that were able to like talk the talk and sound cool about it. were all, you know, uh, born into this film Hollywood lifestyle that, you know, my parents, uh, were definitely, or my family is definitely not in the entertainment industry <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and so the idea that people could have jobs in the entertainment industry still felt very like, Ooh, how do you do that? Um, and you know, I tried to get into USC film school and I didn't. And so I was at UC Santa Barbara doing their film program and like the people that were like thriving there again, it, it felt like people that whose parents were producers or execs or like had insider access in the industry. And I just got so discouraged that it almost felt like there was like a fork in the road where it was like, I can do, um, punk rock bands or I can do, this writing or this like uh follow my film you know uh interests but i couldn't do both and that's like bullshit that i told myself um but at the time i was like well i know how to do bands that's easier that feels more natural to me so i switched my major and i like went into like law and society which was like kind of like the pre-law major uh and then i was like i'll still do punk bands and so I, I kind of made peace with like putting film aside for a while. Um, and then I ended up switching majors again to history, which I actually, I, uh, more than anything, I, I look back fondly on being a history major. Um, but it wasn't until, um, kind of coming up at Henry Clay people and realizing it's weird when you play shows in LA all the time, like how many people are, in the entertainment industry. <laughs> and it, we were, I think we were very naive. Like you, you'd meet somebody at a show who was like a fan and then they'd be like, Oh yeah. Like I'm a music supervisor for this, for, you know, X show or whatever, or I work as an assistant for this executive or whatever, or this producer or whatever. And, uh, somehow we ended up getting to, play a band on the TV show parenthood, but for like one episode, um, somebody had this guy, Steve nice had gotten us, uh, and like happy hollows did this too. I know your buddies with them. Um, but we got to play a band because one of the characters in the TV show parenthood played like a record producer needed a band to, for like some plot point in our case, uh, which was just like typecasting. <laughs> they needed a band to get the, the uh, Dak Shepard's character really drunk so he didn't pick up his kid from school. <laughs> so the Henry Clay people got to be that band. And um, it's great. There's this like moment where like one of the other characters is like, oh, what are you listening to? And Dak Shepard's character is like, oh, just the Henry Clay people. And and gives him like the earbud, the earbud or whatever. And the guy's just like has this disgusted look on his face. Like, what is this shit? And like, that's, that made me feel very happy. Um, anyhow, we, we played the band that gave us a bunch of lines. And the whole time me and Andy were like, we wouldn't say that. Like, I wouldn't say I got to go tune my strat. Like, come on. Um, Did they let you change so, it? Uh, yeah, within reason. And then like, 
and then they saw how terrible we were as actors because we had no idea. I mean, you know, they gave us a bunch of lines and then we were just clamming up anytime they like said action. (laughs) Um, And so what they ended up using in it was mostly ad lib stuff um, which that's how I knew we could be writers. Now, um, uh, what they ended up using in it was stuff that was like, um, they clearly cut around our terrible delivery of the, of the lines, but you know, in seeing the scripts and in reading the scripts, I think both Andy and I realized, uh, maybe we can do this. This, this is something that all of a sudden didn't feel as like, you know, magical <laughs> and like, uh, you didn't need to have like a degree in rocket science to do. Um, yeah. Not to uh, shit on TV writing, but I'm going to totally shit on TV writing. When I worked at CBS, one of my jobs is I had to look at a lot of, read a lot of scripts and I had to give notes about, I was doing standards and practices. If that wants, if, if you want to know how miserable I was, <laughs> but as a guy yeah. who worked as a comedy writer, and understood joke structure, reading sitcom scripts and going and seeing like horrible fucking joke structure and just being like, can I just give comedy notes? Cause this really needs fucking help. <laughs> like, and just yeah. like basic, basic mistakes of like just setups that were like three sentences long. I'm like, you just need the yeah. one fucking line. And it was, and I was like, I should be, but I don't, I don't want to write for a network sitcom, but that's besides the point. Like, it was just like, I was like, they don't really care. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it did feel, um, and you know, like also realizing how much revision happens, like so close to actually shooting it. Um, it just feels like this can't, I mean, you can't expect this to be good if if you're (laughs) revising it the night before. Um, kind of astounding that good, like I'm always like, how did, when there's something great that I love, I'm like, how did this, knowing the process and the shit I've gone through, I'm like, how does this happen? How did they pull this off? Yeah. I think there was, it was a book or something that I read that was like, anytime there is like a movie or TV show that actually is good, consider it a goddamn miracle and like really appreciate something that is good because that is a lot of things coming together and working. And you know, any, name or credit that rolls at the beginning or end of a script is a variable at the end of beginning or end of a show is a variable where something can go horribly wrong from director to actor. to So so if something is ever good, like really (laughs) appreciate it. Um, and, and I do. And until like, I, you know, I also don't like talking shit on, on things that don't work because I also realize that there's, uh, there's a lot of great scripts and stories and well-intentioned things that fall apart for various reasons. Um, and it's sometimes somebody's fault and sometimes it's nobody's fault. Um, oh yeah. And somebody, and it was an industry person when I first moved here, I was like, made some comment about a show and they go, they went, Oh, it was network <clears throat> like the major yeah. networks cable. There's a lot of good stuff and still amazed how that uh, there's good stuff. <laughs> so the first, the like first the show that I was, yeah, like my wife one. loves it. Uh, I have yet to see it, but my wife loves it. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's a weird show. I, 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 it was really fun to work on and I liked it. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm very close to it. So, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, it's been really cool to see that uh, people like it. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's fun. The first show I was on before that, like the first show I was ever staffed on was a network show um, like ABC. And it like just seeing how fast the turnaround is like the writer's room started. And then within what felt like three weeks of the writer's room starting, they were doing like pre-production on, I guess it was maybe like five weeks within five weeks of the writer's room starting, they were doing pre-production on the second episode. And then it's like one thing after another, um, just pumping out scripts and scripts and like revising and, but like all while the thing is in production happening. And so the difference I think for a lot of cable and streaming stuff is that for the most part, you get through the entire season of scripts before they even start shooting. And that to me is like, <laughs> that makes sense. Granted, there was still a lot of like writing and rewriting and tinkering and stuff that um, we do on the resort. And then I know that Andy, Andy did up until, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's a perfectionist. And so he was doing stuff up to the last minute, tweaking some lines and he's good at that kind of stuff. And I think he like, he's really good at writing under pressure. Um, but yeah, there is just something to like the amount of pressure that like those network TV shows go through that. I'm like, do you need to do it like this? Like, I don't know if I feel like the networks need to like, maybe wise up to like, they don't totally need to do it like that, but uh, for whatever reason they, they, they do. Um, but if you just gave people a little more time on scripts and you gave them a little more runway on, on that, then like network TV could be really good possibly, but they just, they, they really just, I mean, there's been out. great sitcoms in the past. I mean, like all in the family cheers taxi all a thousand years ago, but like some of the network shows, I mean, my manager told me, he's like, Oh, well you're mistaken. He's like, they just view it as a means to sell advertising. They don't really care. That was yeah. kind of when I heard that, I was like, Oh, no one cares. I, but I agree with you about like the process. Like I, the guy who executive produced SCTV told me that. And why I think that show was so great is he, they would take six weeks to write take six weeks off and then six weeks to write before they shot. And he was like, that six weeks off was like this time to ruminate. And like, and I was like, fuck, no wonder why that show was so good. Cause they took their time. Yeah. Yeah. The dude, have you, did you ever watch the show Patriot? I um, love that show. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like he, he's a Chicago guy too. Steve Conrad. Is, uh, Mike O'Connell. I don't know if you remember O'Connell who I used to do stuff with. He was in the Patriot and, He's in like almost everything that guy does. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So he came in and spoke to one of my classes at UCLA and he was like, yeah, when we watched, when we started the writer's room for Patriot, like the first several weeks were just like a curated film list or film watching session. So it was like, all right, let's watch all, let's watch like the best James Bond movies and let's watch these five classics. And it was just, him in the writer's room sitting and like analyzing what works in that genre, the spy genre, because that's what Patriot was. Um, and before, so it was like, before they even like got to the writing part of it, they all had like consolidated the reference points by just doing like two or three movies a day. And 
I just feel like, Oh my God, that sounds awesome. And I remember telling Andy when the resort was starting, like, Hey, like maybe, you know, we can do that, but it's, you just don't have time to do that. So you kind of do like the homework things. Hey, everybody watch inherent advice or, you know, long goodbye or like whatever things that he wanted us to watch. Um, we couldn't really just sit and do that in, uh, during the day in the writer's room, (laughs) but we all had homework to do and it was, it was good. Um, and then we would watch clips. There were definitely like clips that were like sequences of, of shows and movies that we would, watch uh as a writer's room which i thought was also helpful that's cool that he was able to have that time that the studio would let him just sit around for three weeks watching movies like i can't imagine a lot of studios being cool (laughs) it's like you're paying those guys yeah i mean well uh, just to clarify that's not andy uh that's steve conrad yeah Yeah, steve yeah yeah i Uh, just but but I think he's got his, he's got his like people dialed in. I think he's got like a crew of people that he has that are all kind of work on his shows. Um, like I feel like just kind of doing a little analysis of like, who are the other writers on Steve Conrad shows? Cause a, that's where I would like kill to be like, I would love to work on any one of his shows. And then I'm like, Oh no, he just got his, he's got it like his Chicago people. And I think they're all actually in Chicago, which is also, you know, I rare to have a writer. No, I want to work for him. Yeah. Yeah. O'Connell was telling me that Tom Waits is a part of the, his, he's got an animated series now and Tom Waits is one of the voices and uh, yeah. Who the fuck um, doesn't want to work with Tom Waits, but I guess Tom Ultra is City. Like cool as shit. Yeah. Ultra city Smiths, dude, you should watch it. It's like, uh, it's like team America. Um, but like this film noir team America, it's like, but it also feels more like Patriot. It's, uh, so strange and so good. And it was on AMC plus, And I feel like nobody realized it came out and I watched it all. And I was like, this is, this is one of the weirdest shows I've seen. And I loved every second of it. I want um, more weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, getting to do the resort, which I think is like a pretty bona fide weird show. Um, it feels like there maybe is more of a stomach for that kind of stuff out there, which is cool. And I think that maybe it's just because like we're tired and we've seen a thousand things and they all kind of look the same. And so, um, you know, the next generation coming up is like, give us something different and take some swings and not all the swings have to work, but just take some goddamn swings. I just saw a Nope, the Jordan Peele movie a couple of days ago. And like, that, that, it takes some bold swings and it's just refreshing because like, I don't know. It's just refreshing because I feel jaded and I've seen everything. So anytime something zigs, when you expect it to, to zag, it just feels refreshing. And I just want more of that kind of content. I agree. Cause I feel like, I feel like anytime something different comes out, like, like severance everyone was like fucking and it's like so dark and so weird because i had a script recently and people were like too dark and i was like what do you like and it wasn't that's the thing i was like there's a million people being shot on tv like what don't tell me my thing is dark but it's like i think people crave something different so when they get it that's why you people respond but then you still get like sort of hey let's reboot that movie that was like they did a sequel to like something from 30 years ago. And I'm like, why are you doing a sequel to something? No one is probably remembers. (laughs) Like, like, what is, I don't understand who you're targeting this to. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird thing with like uh, reliance upon IP and IP this, IP that, and it's it's to me it is bananas. And um, I'm grateful that Andy got to kind of like bypass that because uh, and and it also just kind of speaks to like executives. You know, there's a ton of really cool, smart executives out there, but I also think there's a lot of them that don't know what they want until something else hits that all of a sudden like drives executives to be like, Oh yeah, yeah, I want, I want that. But I think they're, they often operate in from a place of fear and like on their heels and, you know, they don't want to lose their jobs. And that's just, they're and their two homes. In their <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that too. I mean, um, it's hard. To, I mean, if you're making gobs of money, you don't want to. You want to keep making gobs of money. I, it, I'm sure that's hard to fuck with. I see. That, that's one thing that I just I don't under I don't know like how much executives make. And like now that you say that, I'm like, are they making tons of money? I, I have friends that are like junior executives coming up, and they're definitely not making a ton of money. But I guess it's kind of like. As soon as they get their wings, then uh, I know. I guess if you start getting those produced, like managers, that was the thing with like managers used to help you cultivate your career. Like Bernie Bernstein, I don't know if you've ever read his memoir. It's fucking fun. But that's part of the reason. He, yeah. Part of he reason he left is like it wasn't about like helping cultivate people's careers and creativity. It became, oh, I want to produce your movies and I want to make money. And like that's what I noticed yeah. when I was coming here they would just push you towards the money stuff and not what you wanted yeah. to do. And I was like, I don't, I want to make money, but I want to do things. And they were just like, no, no, go write on a sitcom. And I was like, I don't want to write on a sitcom. <laughs> I want to write my yeah. own show. And it was like, it just, they, they would, and which I think is, doesn't help anything. doesn't help creative people. Cause that makes you crazy if you're not doing what you want. Yeah. And if they try to like, and, you know, everybody's going to try to put you in some box, like, uh, for what it's worth, my managers for a while were like, you're, you're punk rock guy who went to grad school at Harvard. <laughs> and, and that's how they would like, probably, it was probably part of my bio that they, they leaned heavily on and I'd have to explain it. Any meeting I had just be like, yeah, but, uh, let's talk about the stories that are right. Let's talk about the scripts that are right. Um, and you know, I got tired of talking about the way that they, they package things, but that's like, that is how the industry works. They package everything in uh it's just meets this and it's just plus this meets this. And I, I see, I see the benefits of doing that. I now I teach like, a, um, I teach at UCLA and I teach a writing class at UCLA. And so I'm constantly telling my students to like, pick a couple of your favorite things and try to figure out cool ways to smash them together. And, and so I do see the benefit of being like, it's Jaws plus the Godfather. <laughs> um, but I also that think scenario, that it, it is Jaws be, the Godfather. Like, is he the Jaws running a mob? I want <laughs> he's literally sleeping with fishes. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Let's experiment with that one. Yeah. No, yeah. Who would be the godfather in that situation? It, it's the shark. I don't know. I keep my mind keeps going to Jabberjaw when I was a kid. Do you remember that cartoon? It was like Jaws, but he was based out of like oh. Curly from the Three Stooges. It's a really weird cartoon. Yeah, I do remember that. What was Jesus Jabberjaw? Wow! I tried. I showed yeah. it to my daughter because she liked sharks, and 
I was like, you're going to get into this just because I don't know why you want to shove the shit you liked as a child into your kid's life. Like it's going to do any good. <laughs> God forbid they find their own things. Yeah. You know, parents got to try. My, my, you know, my dad wanted us to be baseball players. Yeah. Did you, do you teach at UCLA from New York? How does that, or is there like a branch in New York now? Uh, no. So it's a zoom thing. So it was like during the pandemic, all of a sudden, all the classes went to Zoom, and um, this is where my my <laughs> degree came in useful. By the program I was in there, it was called Technology, Innovation, and Education, and like I did studies and I wrote like papers about like online education, and not anticipating a pandemic would be coming uh, five years later, and so <laughs> my background in uh, online education became useful when all of a sudden UCLA was like, Hey, we're hiring people to like teach these writing classes online. Um, you know, and it was like, once I had been credited with that first staff writer job, they were like, Ooh, you got a credit. Cool. You can teach a class. Um, and I love teaching actually. It's, uh, it, it does many things for me. It gives me some, some faith in like humanity and the next generation to possibly be better than our generation. Uh, and it keeps me sharp on writing stuff because I'm like constantly talking about some things that I think do work. And then I can't always tell my students like do this when I myself should also be doing that and don't. Um, so it's kind of has like helped clarify some of my own, writing quirks and processes. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just something that like in the monotony of the pandemic gave me like a little glimmer of life. And so I, I like doing it on zoom too. Um, I've gotten more comfortable. It's also easy to like share my screen and show clips of jaws <laughs> or Jabberjaw. Uh, are you writing anything? What would you do? Would you rather write screenplays or TV? I love TV just because um, I hate the loneliness of writing a screenplay. I like uh, I like the social aspect of being in a writer's room and kind of vibing on other people's ideas and like building off of them and like hearing them pitch a better idea than you had, but like using your idea as the uh, foundation. And it just it just is like you see why it does work, like why why bands are better than solo artists. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I just, I like that energy. And, and if I do, um, there are a couple things that I, you know, I am working on like in developing and like on feature stuff that most of those I have a partner on. Um, and I, I, I have somebody that I would like to write with just because it's just so much more efficient. Um, having somebody to bounce an idea off of. I always say like, if I didn't have that, I can spend three weeks going down the lane on something only to find out when somebody else who I trust reads it, that it's a really terrible idea. That process can be chopped. Uh, you know, if I have somebody tell me like in five minutes, yeah, that idea sucks, but this idea and like, we can bounce it off each other all of a sudden, it just, it just seems way, 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 way more efficient to me. Yeah. Um, I think especially for comedy, I think it helps to have, it also helps right. keep you balanced from going too far one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get a laugh? Does it, is the logic bumping on somebody? Like, 
it's just it's fun too like i i'll i'll take half of uh half to pay any day if i get to have more fun with a friend while i'm doing it um and so that is part of the the attraction of tv although you know my manager and agents do want me to like uh, andy having palm springs like give, give us a feature give us a feature i have a feature that i did with andy before um i just don't like writing features as much so yeah tv's more fun i've always thought i wanted to do movies and then the last couple of things i've written have been more tv like what else tv's cool because you don't have to have an ending and i like I, some people use that as a cop-out to be like well, i don't know what the ending is i'm just gonna put a bunch of bullshit at the end of uh uh you know so many films, especially 80s comedies, the third act is just absolute mayhem for no reason. <laughs> it's just like like Animal House Stripes. It's just a bunch of shit happens, and then it sort of is resolved. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because third acts are impossible to write. They're really hard to write. <laughs> and it's a lot easier to do a setup. And um, yeah, like when something does land a very satisfying conclusion, I'm, I'm always like thoroughly impressed. Um, because I definitely struggle with that. And yeah, TV, you don't need to have, when you're writing your pilot script, you're basically sending your character off on some kind of a journey or whatever. And you don't need to have the journey resolved. You just need to have a solid problem that's going to drive you through a season of television. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Dwyer with Joey Sierra of Near Beer and Henry Clay people. You can go to themattdwyer.com. You could become a Patreon subscriber. You could listen to the part two. We get into some really great, interesting stuff. 30 extra minutes. And all there's all my part twos are up there. Uh, and check out my library. I've talked to everybody. I have 325 episodes. I've talked to fucking everybody. Enjoy my podcast. Thank you so much. Uh-huh.